have you worshiping with us this Sunday morning. If you're just getting back into the routine, this is uh, the kickoff, sort of, the second week of our uh, fall series in the book of Galatians. And uh, we just finished up a sermon series in Proverbs over the summer, and now we're excited about uh, getting back into a rhythm and a routine. And hopefully before long, it'll feel like natural to you. But welcome back. We're glad you're here. One of the things that uh, we usually do in the fall is we start a lot of small groups. And there's all kinds of uh, sizes from three or four people all the way up to small churches on Sunday morning. And sometimes, not always, but depending on your context and your group, one of the things you do when you start off these small groups is uh, people will ask for various personal information, sort of get to know you, not to get into your business or get too nosy or whatever, but just to see a little bit of what you're about and how God has worked in your life. And so depending on your familiarity or your comfort levels with your group, uh, sometimes what you'll do is go around and sort of share snippets of your story. And sometimes you may even share, share your entire life story and say, this is me, this is who I am. And of course, you guys see where I'm at right now, but how in the world did I get here? Well, tell you the truth, sometimes I ask myself the same question, you know, how did we end up here? And it's kind of neat, uh, the older you get, to look back and reflect and say, okay, I can see along the way these various points in the journey, that there was a big moment here and there was a big moment there and there's all this adventure and daily grind and all these other things in between. But at the end of the day, when I look back on my life, I see these very particular transformative moments. Well, today in Galatians chapter 2, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is sort of doing. Through the first and second chapter, in order to verify and validate his apostleship, he's looking back and sort of giving his life story to this small group of people or these churches in Galatia. And he's saying, look, this is where I'm at, and man, it's been quite the journey. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in between, but if there's only two things that I could pull out to you, if there's two pivotal moments, it's these. Number one, sort of my conversion and calling. And number two, it's this big confrontation or fight that I had with the Apostle Peter. Over the last 15 years, these are the things that really jump out. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff, but let me tell you, my conversion and calling and this confrontation with Peter... Boy, those were something else. So I'd like to challenge you here just for a moment. I'm not asking you to tell me or tell the person next to you, but just think in your own mind. Over the last 15 years of your life, assuming you've been here that long, what are two incidences that really jump out in your mind? Maybe you need 20 years, maybe you need 30 years, whatever, but however many number of years up until this point, think, okay, here are two incidences. I can look back and see a lot of things. But these two points were really significant. What are they? You got them? Maybe you have them in your mind. You can even write them down on paper if you want. Sort of cover them up so the person beside you doesn't peek. This morning as we go into it, just sort of hold those in your mind and and weigh them against the thing that's going on here. The calling and confrontation that Paul has. And what I'm going to do throughout the course of the next few moments is sort of walk you through that. And the way I want to is is sort of to start with the background or the history and then move you into the moment. And the reason is, as you can imagine, I mean, I, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but 
Don't raise your hands. How many of you have been in a conflict before (laughs) or a confrontation? If you have, then what you've experienced is probably the reality that this conflict or confrontation didn't usually, they don't just crop up overnight. There's a history going into this. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of background, a lot of personality and experiences and upbringing, etc., etc. And it all goes into this moment. Whatever the incident is that causes it to explode, boom, there it is. But the reality is there's a huge, huge iceberg of information underneath it. So too, in Galatians chapter 2, there's this confrontation that he's talking about. But to really figure out what's going on there, you've got to ask yourself, well, what brought us here? What are the points along the map that drove me to this place? Why is this confrontation so significant? When I tell my life story, why do I care? These are the two big moments. Why? What's the issue? What's the real issue underneath? So let me do that for you then, and I'm going to walk it through if you're taking notes. I don't have a slide, but here's my two, my two things that I'm going to cover today. It's number one, the calling and conversion. This is sort of the build-up. And number two, the confrontation. So we're going to look at all the stuff going into it, and then we're going to see what it actually was. Where's all the history coming from, and then how do things play out? So number one, beginning with this calling... Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, it says this. This is going back to the first chapter. It just says, hey, guys, you've heard about my former life. You kind of know some of the history here, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. I have a little bit of a picture of that. You'll see it on the next slide. Uh, What happens is this, is down in the south towards that what looks like a little lake, it's actually the Dead Sea, Uh, is the city of Jerusalem. That's the very bottom of the red line. And what happens is, at that time, this Pharisee, this Jewish leader by the name of Saul, is going to follow that red line up and to the right, not across the water. Don't worry about that one. This one's going up and to the right, to the north, uh, to the city of Damascus. And as you know, something dramatic happens along the way. Galatians 1.15 tells us, that Jesus, that is, he who had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. All of a sudden, Paul is traveling along the way, and this slide is what you see. He's struck to the ground, blinded by the light, and the Lord Jesus walks into his life. And all of a sudden, everything dramatically changes. He goes from this position of being a persecutor of the church to now an apostle of the church. (laughs) You really can't have that. I mean, that is as dynamic as it gets, right? I mean, that's going from like, you know, Osama bin Laden to CIA. I mean, that is a switch, right? We're talking about a major, major change. So here he is, having gone through this, and to process all of that, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Sometimes when we hear the call of the apostle Paul, we think, Oh, man, the Lord knocked him to the ground, and then the next day he's going on missionary journeys and planting churches. That's how it worked, right? Why doesn't it work in my life like that? I'm discouraged. It's much more of a process for me. Reality, what you see, is actually a process for Paul as well. Yes, his conversion was very dramatic, but actually his calling develops a little. And that's what you see him describing here is this period of time of 
15 years. There's 15 years between this moment and his first missionary journey. That's a long time. You know, that's enough time for college and seminary and your first pastorate, and all of a sudden, boom, now things are starting to come together for you. It's a long process. And here the Apostle Paul says, okay, here's how that process played out for me. There was that conversion moment, but then after that, Galatians 1.18, he says, then after three, or let's see here, I'm sorry, let's go back to Galatians 1.15 and 16. Let me point this out. He says, I didn't go back the way I came after I was, um, after I was called by his grace, verse 17 now, if we still have a slide of this, verse 17. It says, instead, I didn't go back to Jerusalem. I went into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. So here's a, here's a picture of that. What happens is he's on the way up. And I'll, I'm showing you this in Middle Eastern terms, but in just a moment I'm going to show you what this looks like in Michigan. Okay? Don't worry. But for now, here's what it looks like on the other side of the ocean. He's headed north to Damascus. He gets knocked to the ground. And he would have been going all the way north, but he's like, this is too much. So instead, what he does is just go east, and he goes off into Arabia. And he's like, I need some time to process this, and i got to get away from some folks. So I'm running into the desert where there's nobody in the Judean wilderness. I mean, he is gone. He's like off the map. So he runs out into Arabia, and and verses 18 and 19 tells us, then, after three years, I went up. To Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remain with him 15 days. So what's happening here, let me show you one more slide just to give you the bullet points of it. This is Paul's spiritual journey. And what begins like this on his life map, if you're in your little small group and you're saying, hey, this is what happened to me, I was here and then this happened and we moved there and then we went there, the apostle's doing that. He says, hey, I was here, I was persecuting, I was, I was living for the devil. I was as far from Christ as you can imagine. Then, boom, I was converted. But I didn't get it all right away. Instead, I went out to the desert and took some time alone with God to figure out what was going on. I spent three years there, high and dry. And then I went back to Damascus. And from Damascus, I decided to take a little day trip into Jerusalem, a 15-day trip, and introduce myself to the leadership of the church. And it wasn't a big public affair. I was just meeting with a few guys, and they affirmed me. They're like, yeah, we believe you're for real. You're the real deal. So go and do your thing. And I did, and I left, and I went to my first ministry up north in Syria and Sicilia. And you'll see this on uh, this slide and then in this map. Galatians 1.21, it says this. So after I met with these guys, I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia, and If we flip to the next slide, you'll see that that is the purple region on this map and the northern part of the yellow region, Syria and Sicilia. So down south, remember that little tiny lake, the Dead Sea? That's where he he went to meet the apostles. Now he's just gone way off the charts up north into Syria and Sicilia. And he is there for 14 years. So he's completely away from the center of Christianity and the center of Judaism that is Jerusalem. Now, I want to take just a little bit of an aside here and sort of tie this back to the real world. Um, and not that the Bible's not, but you're living in a different area in a different uh, time period. 
And what you see is, I've, I've just said one word over and over again that you've probably heard in the news. What was it? Syria. Exactly right. This is Syria. The same Syria you're hearing about today. The one that's getting all the bombs dropped on it and the little kids are getting buried under the rubble and that people are fleeing for their lives across seas and spreading out throughout Europe and anywhere else they can go to save their lives. This is Syria. And I don't know if you're watching the pictures or not, but I am and it is tearing me up. I hope it's doing something to you. These are real people with real problems. And I go to the grocery store and I can pick whatever I want off the shelf and they don't even have food. Let alone water and safety and school and yada yada. And I'm not trying to get in the complicated international politics of Russia, Iran, the U.S., Saudi, Yemen, you know, Sunni, Shia, whatever. But I'm just saying this. There are little kids that are dying every single day and we ought to do something about it. Syria. This is Acts chapter 11 and also Galatians chapter 1. And basically, this is the, this is the beginnings of Christianity. Let me show you a map of Syria right now. This is modern Syria. And this is all the different torn up, torn up regions, different powers at play, yada, yada. But what's interesting about this is, you know, you can see it on the news and you just say, okay, I'm Syria, you know, Syria, yeah, yeah, oversight, you know, Islamic State, not interested. But the reality is, you're actually Syrian. I'm Syrian. I'm big time Syrian. Why is that? Acts chapter 11. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. That's Syria. For a whole year. And they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Call yourself a Christian? Guess where it started? First time ever you were called a Christian. It's in Syria. In Antioch. These are our friends. There are Christians there. So, there's Syria. Now, back to Galatians chapter 2. It says that Paul was there for 14 years. I was there for 14 years. This is his first ministry stint. 14 years in Syria. No missionary journeys whatsoever. He's just faithfully being the apostle. And then he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. So they make another trip. This is 14 years later. Now, you'll see if you're in a life group, some of these questions will ask, well, is this Acts chapter 11 or is this Acts chapter 15? Because it's kind of hard to figure out because Paul doesn't exactly tell you here's where Galatians happened in the book of Acts. We know that Galatians is unfolding in the book of Acts, and we try to line up the subject matter and the people and the timing, but he doesn't do it for us. And so if you're interested in that historical thing, you can chase that down. But let me show you what that looks like in Michigan. So this is just to give you the Michigan map. Let us imagine that something like this was happening in Michigan. And... Here's my now culturally applied attempt to jump and leap into our day. So you got Michigan, right? And let's just pretend, you know, the lake's kind of like the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And you're in the mainland. You're in the mitten. 
But then you're an apostle and you're living in, I don't know, some liberal university town, getting a liberal education, and you are fully convinced that those evangelical Christians, especially the ones in the UP, those UPers, are a bit off the rocker. I mean, these conservative folks actually believe in that ancient myth, and their Bible's got all kinds of errors, and it's unscientific, pre-enlightenment, dark ages, dawn of whatever stuff that makes no sense to a post-scientific enlightened mind. And so you are going to go forth from the halls and bastions of liberal intelligentsia and go out and just round up those youpers and bring them all in and give them an education. <laughs> and so you get permission and this is actually your tenure track. You're on your way to go up north and round these people up. And you're bringing them back. And all of a sudden, along the way, the Lord Jesus meets you and he stops you. And he says, hey, no, hold on. You know those youpers that are evangelical Christians that you're making fun of all the time? They're actually right. And I want you to stop going after them. Instead, use all that intelligence and all that education that you have for me and my church. And now I want you to hold apologetics conferences and this and that and this and that. And I want you to lead the New Testament church in this arena. And so what ends up happening is that person who's coming from that university says, this is a little bit too much for me to handle. So I'm going to cross Lake Huron and go off into the wilderness, Canada, of Ontario. And I'm going to spend some time there. Yes, my Canadian friends, I just said that. And process all that's happened to me. And so he goes there for three years off into Ontario, into Canada, and then he comes back, he meets with the leaders of evangelical Christianity in Grand Rapids. Yeah. And then they confirm him and say, yep, you really are a Christian, even though you don't have the fancy last name. You are for real. And we want you to go and be the apostle. And so then he goes and does ministry for 14 years up north and say, like, I don't know, at the tip, tip of the mitten, right before you go into the UP. And then he comes back to Grand Rapids and says, okay, guys, I'm about to go on my first missionary journey. That's where we're at. Galatians chapter 2. Paul has just walked through this process. I've just given you half the sermon saying, this is my life up until this point. Here's how we got here. Here's my calling and conversion. These are the points along the way. This is my life map. Now, all of a sudden, boom, there's a big blow up. And going into that, I want you to see all the history in the background. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Here's the three-man road trip, and it goes like this. <clears throat> then, after 14 years, that's that time ministering in his first ministry, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But here's part of the key in this great debate. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek or a non-Jew. Yet, because of all the false brothers brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel 
might be preserved for you. Here's the issue behind his flight. Now, verse 6, it says, And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were really makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed to be influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, look, was for his apostolic ministry, was the same guy who was working through me. James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. At this time, it's interesting that actually it was the people in Syria helping the people in Jerusalem. Now, of course, the case should be reversed. But, verse 11, he says, When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, that's the yellow portion up north from the map, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with these guys. He was hanging out with the Gentiles. They're, they're cool. But when all of a sudden they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing their circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Wow. <laughs> what in the world is going on there? The apostles are duking it out. They're fighting. Well, I thought Christians were supposed to be nice. Nicey, nicey, meek and mild, never say anything rough or harsh. That's the way we're supposed to be, right? It's not that with Paul. Well, what's the issue here? Is it a personality conflict? Are we talking about leadership styles? Or perhaps it's just cultural or ethnic or race or class or whatever. The reality is, in this text, it's something that goes beyond, no matter how deep those things seem, it goes beyond even that. It's even bigger than all of those categories. Here's what's going on. For the people who are brought up in, in Judaism, their whole life map revolves around their cultural identity. They are the chosen people. They are the ones that God called out through their grandfather Abraham. They are the ones who were given the promises. They are the ones who were given the law. They are the ones who were promised a Messiah and a chosen deliverer. They are God's holy people set aside to bless the world. It's a special group. And as a result, the sign of that agreement or the sign of that covenant or the sign of that contract has been circumcision. And they've been practicing this for a long time. And their view is basically now forgot sort of the, the intent, but instead focused on the thing. Which, by the way, can happen a lot, can't it? Worship services, tradition, liturgy. It's very easy for us to get focused on the thing and forget the intent and then begin that thinking that the thing or the, the sign is the thing itself. When in reality, 
It's just a symbol. Such is the case in circumcision, and the Jews are all wrapped up in it, and they're like, hey, look, this is 2,000 years worth of cultural identity. There is no way we're giving this up in a day. So it may be the case that we're willing to say, okay, some, some non-Jewish people can come to Yahweh, but wouldn't it make sense for these non-Jewish people who are coming into the covenant to all of a sudden receive the sign of the covenant. If they're entering into the agreement and they're going to get the blessings and they're going to receive the inheritance that we've been promised, then why don't they also take on the sign as well? That makes sense. And as a result, what happens is when Paul comes on the scene and he starts saying things like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace... Have you been saved through faith? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. These folks are going crazy. How can this happen? This simply can't be right. And so factions or divisions occur within the church, and all of a sudden there's different groups. There's the circumcision and the uncircumcision. There's people saying you have to take the sign and people saying you don't. And the people that are saying you have to take the sign are now pushing the envelope so much that this is what you get in Acts chapter 15. You have people coming in and actually saying, unless, Acts chapter 15 verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You've got to do this. Jesus is something, but he's not enough. You need something more. You need to be circumcised. And when the Apostle Paul hears this, he is like, no way. You've got to be kidding me. I don't care what you say, but anything but that. It stops here and stops now because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. That's it. And it doesn't matter if you are a Jew, a Gentile, an American, a Syrian, a person of color or a white person or whatever, God does not care. All He cares about is your heart. And if your heart is repentant and believing that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of the living God, crucified and risen on the third day and coming again, then you are in. And anybody else who says anything is in a really bad spot. And so he comes directly to none other than the Apostle Peter himself, right? The Apostle Peter. And he is like, how dare you? How dare you act so insolently? Your behavior smacks of hypocrisy. You call yourself an Apostle? Don't you remember the message that Christ gave us? It is by faith in him alone. And what you're doing right now directly contradicts that. No, 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 I know. It's not something you said. You can try to weasel out of it by saying, well, I never said that they had to be circumcised. These were other people. But you were just, in your non-verbal behavior, affirming what they were saying in their verbosity. 
And this is where it gets really complicated and interesting for us because we look at this and here's the issue, church. Here's where I'm applying it to you and your heart today. You can sit here and say, okay, we're the New Testament. We don't have that issue. Circumcision, whatever. Nobody's going to check, right? You're okay. All right? That's what we're saying. We're not worried about that issue. But there are all kinds of things going on in your life that may not be in harmony with the gospel. That directly contradicts it and puts it in conflict. You say that Jesus offers forgiveness. Do you? How does that match up with the gospel if you withhold forgiveness from somebody else? That's anti-gospel. The gospel is about forgiveness. But you withhold it? What would Paul say to you? You say that God so loved the world that he gave. Do you give to your church? Do you give to anybody? What is it, like 1%, 2%, the national average that people tithe? That's nuts. You make a dollar and you can't even give God 10 cents? I thought Jesus gave. Yeah, he gave himself. He gave everything. What does that say of us? You say that Jesus is faithful and he will never leave you or forsake you. Yet you're thinking about leaving your wife. How is that gospel? You say that God is worthy of all glory and praise. And where is worship in your life? How much of a priority is it? I know you guys are sitting here this morning. That's great. But there's other people who stayed out late, watched a movie, and went to a ball game or whatever. And it just didn't fit with their schedule today. And so they don't care. No big deal. The gospel is about the glory of God and the redemption of creation and restoration of fallen humanity. And for that, we should be thankful and forever sing His praise. But we only worship when it fits with our schedule or is convenient. How is that the gospel? When your behavior conflicts with the message, the behavior has to go. We say that there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile or whatever, yet we treat people who look differently than us different. It's got to go. In other words, what happens in this text and what I'm happening, I'm hoping happens in your life is this. The Apostle Paul has in full measure what the Apostle Peter did not. That's conviction. If you want to be consistent, consistency requires conviction. Strong conviction. And once you have that conviction and you believe in the message of Jesus Christ, then you don't care who it is and you go full bore straight ahead no matter what all the time for the gospel and the glory of God. And that's what we want. But if you don't, and who cares? Willy-nilly, whatever, you know, some, maybe so, maybe not. Eh. No conviction, no consistency. But conviction produces consistency and consistency character. And we're after the character of Christ. Consistency in conduct requires conviction in the message of the cross. That's the message I want to leave you with today. So I'm not going to get up 
here and say, you know, you need to do this or you need to do that or here's your plan from A to Z. But instead, what I want to, because you know what? It may look different. Let me tell you a little secret. Here's something funny. In this chapter, Apostle Paul says, I didn't let Titus be circumcised, not even for a minute. Wouldn't stand for it. He's fully Gentile and I'm going to bless it. That's in this chapter. But you know what? Acts chapter 16, right after the council, he has Timothy circumcised. Why? Isn't that inconsistent? One, he requires to be circumcised, and the other, he doesn't? No. Because the issue at stake is the gospel. And when people are saying, you need to be circumcised to be saved, Paul says, no way. Forget it. That's not the gospel. But... When there's other people that don't know anything about the gospel and all they will think about is your cultural heritage, then you just change that because you're more concerned about the gospel than your cultural heritage. And you walk into this situation and say, whatever, this is my history background, but I can change that. I don't care. What I care about is the gospel. And so he is consistent because he is consistent in his conviction that the gospel is the center thing. Not my whatever. If someone tarnishes the gospel, I confront that, and I hold to this. But if it's not about the gospel, then I give it up. No big deal. Consistency requires conviction. That's what I want. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So 20 years from now, I don't think you'll probably remember this sermon. I wish you would, but it's hopefully what you will come away with is this. When you look back on your map and you say, okay, here's the dots and I'm trying to connect the points from A to B to C to whatever. I can specifically say, God's at work in my life here. God did this. I developed and grew here. But throughout the whole journey, my conviction stayed the same. I was 100% confident in the eternal, non-changing, ever-present message of God's eternal redemption of mankind. Based on the love of my Savior, His perfect life, sacrifice, resurrection on the cross, and His coming again. And then, regardless of which situation it is that comes up, I'm just going to live and breathe that out. Making every decision in alignment with that. Saying, okay, it's my finances. Okay, it's my relationships. Okay, it's my time. Okay, it's my worship. It's my whatever. Does it fit with the central message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you do that, and you look back on that map, you'll see that it's consistent. Everything lines up. What I'm asking essentially for you is this, is not to fight over your personality, your preferences, your styles, or whatever. But instead, be willing to do one thing and one thing alone. And that is to go to the hill for the message of the cross. Because Christ went to the hill you. Father, we thank you for your incredible, incredible sacrifice. There is none like you. You are so good and you are so great. Your son is incredible. We're about to celebrate his body and his blood and we praise you. Lord, we know there's a lot of history in each of our experiences, all kinds of baggage, stuff we don't even want to talk about or don't even like to admit to ourselves. But at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that your overwhelming spirit would empower us 
so that the one message that rings true throughout it all is the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.